mornings and come study the Bible and praise the Lord. That's a great thing to do. I do encourage you to think about these groups Don's been talking about. You'd get the idea he's recruiting you, wouldn't you? And he is. And these questions uh, each week are hopefully uh, helpful to you in your groups. If, if, you're, if you really have intimacy problems, social problems, don't want to get in a group, then uh, take these questions back to your office and get some quiet time and imagine how you would answer them in a group. Just get a little practice there all by yourself. And then one of these days you'll actually join a group and you'll find it'll be really helpful. But I hope these questions can lead you in taking the things that we talk about and applying them immediately and directly to your own heart. Because until you do that, it's just another lesson, another lecture. It transforms from a lecture into really a life lesson when you take it and kind of rub it into your soul. Uh, and I do think the best way is in a group. But if, if you can't, really, uh, just time-wise or whatever, uh, please do take those questions seriously as you go your way and find some time to interact with them. Well, take your Bibles and turn to First Peter in case you've been asleep for three weeks. Uh, this is page 2016 in your Spirit of the Reformation Study Bible. And we're going to look at uh, three verses this morning, beginning with verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And we've seen that the whole idea in this letter, in fact, in his two epistles, is that we're supposed to learn how to stand firm. And we've got a lot of reasons not to stand firm, as we'll see as we continue to study First Peter. Peter had reasons not to stand firm. As a matter of fact, at one point in Peter's life, uh, classically, he didn't stand firm. But Peter's learned now the secret to standing firm. And he's eager to share it with all the rest of us by the inspiration of the Spirit. And we've seen in order for us to stand firm, we've got to have solid ground. What's that solid ground? We have to know what the source of truth is. Why do you believe what you believe? Why are you sure what you believe is true? And we looked at that in our very first lesson. And then we saw that Peter introduces his letter to us in a way that describes us in a phenomenal way. And if you're going to stand firm, you have to know who you are and what right you have to stand firm on the ground that you've chosen. Now we want to look at how, and this is really the fundamental, if you're going to stand firm, you need to know who God is. Most basic thing in life, highest person, uh, highest purpose of, of being a, a man in the first place is to know the God who made you. And when you know him, you're going to have solid ground to stand on, no matter what the vicissitudes of life. So let's look at these three verses. We get a lot of them. We'll try to get out of them what we can. There's a lot in here. Let's do the best we can in these three verses. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Gentlemen, I think two of the things that, to me, most commonly make men ineffective in their relationships and in their workplace, in their community, are, number one, Men tend to get self-absorbed and very prideful and thinking mostly about themselves, gazing at themselves, looking at themselves, worried about themselves, just completely involuted on themselves. Or secondly, they get terrified. They get paralyzed by the fears of life and they just tend to back off and they get hopeless and cynical and skeptical. And they don't, they don't trust anybody, anything. Uh, and I see those two things at work in men's lives that tend to paralyze them or at least to wound them and keep them from moving ahead. And in the text that we've got before us, we've really got the solution for both of these things. 
And the solution for both of them is to know your God. We're told of the Israelites, they were a people who knew their God. And men who know their God are men who have the antidote for being self-absorbed. And they have the equipment that they need to face all the awesome and fearsome things that face us in life. It's knowing God. And this morning we're going to look at that because Peter displays to us how important it is really to know God. Jeremiah says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories or boasts, boast in this, that he knows me and understands me, that I'm the God who practiced steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in all the earth. For in these things I delight, says the Lord. So we, we don't boast in what we are or have. We boast in one thing, the living God and what he's done for us. That's the very foundation of the, uh, that you're standing upon if you're going to stand at all and if you're going to lead, lead an effective life. And if you'll notice right from the beginning, Peter says, blessed or praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, we praise God. First thing we do when we come to know him is we praise him. I just thought that hymn that we were singing was fantastic. Praise ye the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Have you not noticed the very desires of your heart are the things that he has ordained for you that come to pass in your life, says the hymn writer. And we were singing that out this morning. Praise be to the Lord. And what does praise mean? Well, this word uh, is eulogetos, which comes, that's the Greek word. It just means good word. And if you look at that word, its construction, you'll you'll see it. E-U just means well or good. And for a matter of fact, when um, you remember when uh, Jesus says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. The, the word well done is this word, ew. He just says, ew. <laughs> it just means well or good. And so then the next word you see, logatos, uh, that comes from the word logos. You know, from John chapter one, uh, that in the beginning was the logos, the word. And the word was God, the word was with God, and the word was God. And then the word, the logos became flesh, speaking of Jesus Christ. It just means word. So here you have good word, from which we get the English word eulogy. A eulogy is not a dirge. uh, It's a good word. And so uh, at the funeral sometimes, someone just gives a good word, a eulogy. Well, here's what Peter is saying. When you come to know the Lord, you bless him. And that's what blessed means, to give a good word. And it's typical in the Old Testament. For example, in Psalm 103, we say, praise the Lord, O my soul, in the NIV. What does the KJV says? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless His holy name. And so we bless Him. We say a good word about Him. We speak of Him. We, that's what it means to praise Him. Or as the psalmist says in Psalm 29, ascribe to the Lord, O family of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due His name. So whatever is due his name, what's been revealed to you about him, his character, his works, you ascribe it to him. So worship is theology in reverse gear. What we're doing here primarily on Thursday mornings is theology. That is, we're studying God. That's what theology means. We're doing biblical theology, if you will. We're studying theology from the Bible as well as nature. So everything that we study then is to be returned in worship. So worship is theology in reverse gear. Theology is God revealing himself to us, and our worship is mirroring back to him what we've learned. That's the reason, gentlemen. It's very important to study your Bible. 
First reason to study your Bible is so that you can praise God aright and give him credit for who he is and what he's done. And so when you have the lack of the study of the Bible, when you have the lack of the study of theology, you're going to have the lack of true worship. Just watch it happen. When people don't take the Bible seriously, their worship tanks. It does it individually, in families, and corporately in the church. And you can see it happening in the American church today. So we must study in order to bless him, to speak of him. That's exactly what Peter does. Now, this is a common expression in the Old Testament. It's also common in the New Testament. It's been retranslated in the NIV to praise him usually, so you don't catch the significance of it. But that's what it means to praise him. It means to give a good word about him. And gentlemen, this is our reason for being. This is the reason that God has made us. We have we have minds. Or sometimes I'll say to my children, alleged minds. But we've been given minds. We've been made rational, sentient beings. Although sometimes we deny our character, don't we? But we've been given minds. Why? So that we can study God and the works of His hands, including science and, and uh, the arts. And we can study what He has done. And we can study the literature of the Bible. And we can draw near to Him in prayer and worship so that we know Him and then we can worship Him. This is the reason for human beings is to reflect the glory of God. What, what is it said of us in Genesis chapter 1? We're different from all the rest of the animals regardless of what many are saying in the brightest places in, in our academic circles that we're just like the animals. We're not. We're different. How are we different? We were made in the image of God. He impressed certain things about himself and his own character upon us that he did not on the rest of the animal kingdom. Why? So that we would display his glory in a unique and peculiar way. We are in relationships that are thoughtful and giving and loving. Why? Because the Trinity himself, the three persons in one essence, have been relating to each other for all eternity. And by having male and female and human beings who relate to one another in love, we're displaying the very Godhead himself. So human beings' purpose is to glorify God. To reflect his character. And therefore, our hearts, our minds, and our lips, and sometimes our hands, are useful in worshiping the Lord and drawing attention to him. I mean, you pick it up from the first pages of the Bible. After Cain killed Abel, then Seth was born. And what are we told at the end of Genesis chapter 4? Earliest pages in the Bible. Men began to call on the name of the Lord. That is, they began to worship from the time we had a family. From the time we had God beginning to make a family through, uh, uh, through Adam and Eve and Seth and on through uh, the, the rest of the genealogy, we were made to be a people who call on the name of the Lord. And then what happened to us? We were given a promised land. We went there. Then we went to Egypt when the famine came. And we, and we came into slavery. Why were we delivered from slavery? Well, of course, the Lord heard our groans and our misery. And He had mercy on us. But what was the message that Moses sent to Pharaoh seven times? He said, let my people go. And what was the rest of that sentence? Seven times. We studied it in Exodus a few years ago. Let my people go that they may worship me. In fact, Moses' first request to Pharaoh was not to go all the way to the Holy Land. He said, would you just let us go out in the wilderness and have a festival? We just want to worship. And Pharaoh said no. Of course, God had ordained that from the beginning because he was going to display his justice by the destruction of, of Pharaoh's eldest son and, and all the eldest of, of Egypt. 
And he was going to deliver his people into a more permanent freedom for worship. But the whole purpose of the deliverance, the exodus from Egypt, was to let the people worship God. They couldn't worship and They were having to work on the, on the Sabbath. And they were prevented from worship. I'm telling you what, when you come between God and his people in worship, you should expect some fireworks. You should expect a sea to be held back and the people who couldn't even defend themselves to walk through safely and their enemies to be washed in the sea because God wants to be worshipped by his people. And what did they do? He took them to Sinai and he taught them how to be a worshipping nation. And he made a priesthood for them. And he gave them a tabernacle and took the whole last half of Exodus. You remember that? When we were studying Exodus, we're looking at all those chapters from chapter 24 all the way through 40. What's this whole thing about a tabernacle? Why would the Holy Spirit take up all these pages in my Bible and talk about the tabernacle? Because it's a dwelling place of God, that's why. And because He cares about how it's built. And then you get to Leviticus. Whoopee! Boy, this is a great book. Talking about all this blood and guts and sacrifices. What is all this about? It's a very detailed description of how you worship a holy God as a redeemed sinner. There has to be blood. There's life in the blood. And of course, for foretelling of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You go to the middle of your, your Old Testament. What do you have? A songbook. 150 songs in it. We have a songbook in our Bible. It takes up a lot of space. Why? To teach the people how to praise the Lord. It's just full of praises from every human condition you can imagine. You get all the way to the end of the Old Testament. What do you have? Malachi. And Malachi's complaining a lot against the people of God because they've divorced their wives. They want to go after some of these young Palestinian chicks with no wrinkles. And then, then they were letting their own daughters marry other guys that didn't know the Lord. And then they decided not to tithe. Boy, Malachi got really torched about that one. And, uh, but what was the first complaint it's in chapter 1 of Malachi? You're showing me irreverence. You're bringing me offerings that cost you nothing. You're bringing me your blemished lambs you didn't even want in your flock anyway. You use worship to kind of purge out your livestock. That was the first complaint. And you know what God's response was? Shut the door. I'd rather not have that worship. I'd rather not have worship at all than have your worship. And we think, oh, God's really pleased to have our worship. You know, they'll just get there on Sunday. Surely God's really happy with it. No, he wants your heart. And if he doesn't have your heart, he'd just soon not have it at all. Because it's contempt. How do you feel when you're being held in contempt? You'd just soon she'd not be there, wouldn't you? Then to have her there and just hold you in contempt. That's the way the Lord feels about His bride. Just soon not have you there than to hold Him in contempt. So worship in the Old Testament is just suffused with worship. You come to the New Testament, you find one place where we're told the Father is seeking anything. We're told the Son came to seek and to save the lost. But only one place in the Bible where we're told that the Father is seeking anything. And what is it? John chapter 4, 23. The Father seeks, seeketh such to worship Him. What are such? Worshippers. God is spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. The Son is seeking worshipers. Romans 15, the Son gathers the Gentiles together. And the Son of God leads them in the praises of Almighty God in the last day. That's the whole purpose of redemption is to gather up a choir. You look at the work of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, Be filled with the Spirit. What's the first fruit of the Spirit? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your hearts to the Lord. The first work of the Spirit is to make you a worshiper and to restore you to the very purpose that He made Adam and Eve. And then you look in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, and we find that we're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Why? Because He called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Why? That we may give praise to Him. 
that we may praise him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. The whole purpose of the church. We're called out for something. What? To praise him. So Peter, like his friend Paul, starts his epistle like Paul did in Ephesians. Praise be, blessed be the God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a God. Now, we we go on and look and see why he's being praised. We don't just say, praise you, Lord. We're specific for why we praise him. That's the reason for biblical study. So you can be specific. Your prayer life is going to change when you study the Bible because the language of the Bible is going to start coming out. Why? Because you're going to see what God has done. You're going to get outside of yourself. Most of the time, 95% of the time, we think about ourselves, who I am and what I've done. You get in the Bible and you start saying, oh, it's not about me. It's about him. What about him? And you begin to develop a whole language, a whole field of discourse that has to do with reality. And reality doesn't start with you. Reality starts with the eternal God. And it changes your paradigm. And it's going to make you effective. And you're not going to be until you shift your paradigm. And this is where it starts. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter begins by praising God for who he is. Who is he? He is God. He is God. You are not. This is the way your thinking needs to begin. I am not God. He is God. I'll praise him as God. What does God mean? Well, you know, in the Old Testament, you have El, E-L in the English, or Elohim, which is, is plural for El. And it, it just, just means the one who is strong and mighty. The one who created. In Genesis 1, it's El or Elohim. Jehovah comes a little later. So his name is, is strong or mighty one. The one who made everything. That's a great place to start. Praise the Lord for his creation. So we get up in the morning, not just on Amen morning, to sing praise to the Lord, but we get up every morning, acknowledge him as creator. He made me, therefore he has complete rights over me. He doesn't have to explain anything. He doesn't have to apologize for anything. He's the creator. And I may not understand everything, especially my afflictions, but he has, there is no sin in him. There's no darkness in him. There's no wrong in him. He is just in all of his ways, including my cancer. He is not wrong. He is right. And I'm going to learn the rightness of it and learn how he's blessing me in it. We'll get into that next week. Praise be to God for being God. Don't treat him like a mascot. Don't treat him like your servant. You're his servant. He's God. Secondly, the God and Father. He is our Father. And we get so used to this in the Christian religion. Those of you who go to church or have thought about it every once in a while, you've heard God spoken of His Father. Jesus taught His disciples to pray, Our Father. It's in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 32.6, Isaiah 63.16, God is the Father of Israel. Now, this is contrary to Islam. A Muslim, a pious Muslim, would never call God His Father. That would be shirk or... Um, that would be a, you know, a, a real uh, contempt for God to call him your father. That would make you his son. And that would put you, elevate you to a place and give you an intimacy that is not appropriate for God in their view, who is very distant. Now, he's called merciful, but he's never called father. So this is unique to the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, look, pray like this. Our daddy, our papa. Our Father in heaven. You have that kind of relationship with Him. So not only do we praise Him for being the Creator of all, but we praise Him for relating to His creation. 
So in the New Testament, and the Old Testament alike, what you have is a God who is unrivaled in his glory and power and majesty. And a God who is unrivaled in his intimate relationship with his creatures. He loves us. He made us and he redeemed us. And he, come, he comes to us and makes us his sons. And he does it by a mighty miracle. We're not his sons because we're born as human beings. Because now we're sinners since the fall in Eden. So we're alienated from him. But we, we are his sons because he gave us new birth as we see in this very text. He did something miraculous to make us his sons and to give us the full rights of the children of God. We are his heirs. We are adopted into his family. And he has given us his DNA by the new birth. We call it regeneration. The Spirit has come and actually changed our moral and spiritual DNA so that we look like him. Some of your children look just like you. And it's just fun to see. It's really charming you to see your kids. And I can tell whose kid they are just by looking at them. It's amazing. And what's really amazing is that they look good. Uh, it's just amazing what God can do with faces like the ones in this room. You know, put them in our kids and they just look great. It's because we married well and don't, don't doubt that for a moment. But these people look like you. They share your DNA. And that's exactly the way it is with us. And the more we get to know him and the closer we get to him, we look more like him. Because he changes us. There's a miraculous change on the inside. So he doesn't just... Some of you have adopted children. Some of you are adopted children. And you didn't have the DNA of your parents. And you could probably give us a lecture on the tensions that that causes within a family. Let me tell you something. God didn't take any chances. He adopted you, made you a legal heir, but then he changed your nature miraculously. So that you can call him. Because as Peter says in Second Peter, we participate in the divine nature. So we, we, we reflect him. And you can call him Papa and draw near to him because he is your Papa. He, he, give, he gave you birth. And so he really is your father. And so it's even more than just legal adoption. It's very, very personal. So in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we find that God is presented to us as father. And this, gentlemen, changes everything because some of us had really unhappy experiences. Most of us had mixed experiences. We had fathers that we loved and respected, and we just wished they had done this or done this or tweaked that or tweaked that. Some of you had really, really difficult experiences where your father never knew how to tell you he loved you, never knew how to show acceptance. Some of you have told me stories so that I know all you got from your dad was criticism after criticism after criticism. You were never good enough. And it just tends to plague you all your life because you're constantly trying to please this figment of your imagination, even when your dad's gone on, died. You're still trying to please this figment of your imagination, this voice that you're hearing. Well, hey, great, you got an A-, minus, but you could have had an A+. Plus. And you hear that voice all your life until you meet your real papa, your eternal papa, and you learn that he loves you and he accepts you through Jesus Christ. He gently is leading you forward. And there's not one blooming thing in this world you could do to make yourself more acceptable to Him. And you relearn what it means to be a kid who's really loved and cherished and encouraged. And I only know one thing that can do that, and that is the fatherhood of God through the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only thing I've seen ever in a man's life, really, to dispel the ghosts of the past. And it can be done through Jesus Christ. I've seen that happen over and over again. 
It's all because, Peter says, and Peter had the same thing. He learned God as real Father through Jesus Christ. Praise be to God and Father. But then notice how specific he is. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's very specific here. Very specific. Peter has no intention of praising God in a way so that all the nations, regardless of their religious background, can come together and have some religious confab and have an interfaith service and praise God of some generic nature. He has no interest in that whatsoever, and neither does Jesus Christ. Jesus came to exegete the Father. He came to display the Father, to explain the Father. And He basically said, if you don't agree with this explanation, if you don't come to the Father in the way I'm describing, you're not coming to Him at all. You're coming to a figment of your imagination, a God you've created for your own convenience. And people do this all the time. We wake up first thing out of the womb, creating God. Creating a God who gets along with our peccadilloes. Creating a God who will make life convenient for us. Creating a God who explains things the way we like to have them explained. Ladies, I mean, gentlemen, why don't we accept a God who is instead of creating one? And I tell you the one who is. This is what Jesus said. This isn't the word of the preacher. This is the words of Jesus. No one comes to the Father but by me. He is the one who reveals God. He's, and Peter is very specific. Now, if you go back in the Old Testament, you'll find that Moses was also very specific. When Moses was talking about the God who created the heavens and the earth, he wasn't talking about a generic God. What he was doing, he was writing that while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they'd just been delivered from slavery. They're trying to figure out how to be free people, which is very difficult to do. And sometimes, some of you could tell us it's difficult to do multiple generations after slavery. It's hard to live like a free man. Well, just think of this first generation coming out of Egypt, trying to learn how to live like a free man. And God reveals himself to them so that they, they will be free people. But... Here we see that Moses, when he took him out into the wilderness, the reason he gave him Genesis 1 and 2 was to say, Look, beloved, the God who is your God, the God of his people, is the God who made the entire universe. Your God is not a tribal deity. Your God is not a national cult. Your God is not the God of one religion among many. Your God is the one who made everything is to be worshipped by all people. And He happens to be your God. Jehovah. That's the covenant name for God. Later, of course, in the New Testament, translated Lord. And Jehovah, I am that I am, is the God of, listen to this, said God to Moses, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the God I'm talking about. The God who took Abram out of the land of the earth, the Chaldees, and took him to the land of promise to give him an inheritance and to give him a people as numerous as the stars of the sky. That's the God I'm talking about. The God of Isaac, who delivered Isaac from the ninth of Abram because he is a God who provides a ram in the thicket. That's the God I am. I provide for my people. The God of Jacob, when you're treacherous and deceitful and deserve to be destroyed by your elder brother, I'm the God who rescues you just like I did unworthy Jacob. That's the God I am, the God of your people. So Moses was very specific about who God is. The God who has acted to redeem a people. 
And that's what Peter is saying. This is not a generic God. The God of the Bible is a very specific God. The God who is, who created everything, but the God and Father, listen to this, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But let me tell you the greatest work of redemption this God ever performed. It was not calling Abram out of the Ur of Chaldees. It was not delivering Isaac from the knife. It was not redeeming Jacob when he was so unworthy. The greatest work this God ever did to redeem His people was to send His own Son to be incarnate and to land Him upon a cross to dry, die naked, to spill His blood for the sins of His brethren. That's the God I'm talking about, says Peter, and that's the God I praise. So he's very specific about it. You see how he praises God for who he is in his essence, in his in his name. And then he praises God for what he's done specifically in Jesus Christ. And this is the reason we need to know it, because guys, we don't know who God is if we don't know what he's done in Jesus Christ. You just don't know him because he reserved his greatest work for these last 2000 years. And it's going to be consummated when he comes back. And that's who Peter's praising. That's who we're supposed to praise. That is the God who is. So the first thing we do is we praise God. And then then secondly, we praise him for who he is. Revealed in his very name. Lord Jesus Christ. We could take three weeks to look at Lord Jesus Christ. His name is full of meaning. Then thirdly, we praise God for what he has done. And of course, the name God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ leads us into this because the name of Christ hints at what he has done, of course. But what we see here in 3b through 5 is that uh, he has done something. God has done something for us. He, it's not just who he is and we glory in his name, but he's done something. He's been merciful to us. Notice he's given us gifts. So we're going to notice, first of all, his gifts are merciful in his great mercy. He's given us something. You know, um, there are really two fundamental questions in life. You know, is God good? And secondly, is he good to me? And here you have it. Peter is saying, I'm going to tell you why I praise the Lord. Because not only is he merciful, he's merciful to me. And gentlemen, when you think about God, and if you want to talk to him today, when you talk to him, you really need to know that you're talking to someone who is good in his essence, his very being, and that he's been good to you. And you need to be able to articulate how he's been good to you. That's giving glory to him. Don't take his gifts without thanks. Any, any southern mother has taught you better than that. But, but the Bible has taught you better than that. You don't take God's gifts and run off like a spoiled brat. You turn to him and you give him thanks the way he wants to be thanked. And here Peter is saying that in his great mercy, what is he saying? What's Peter saying? Peter is saying, look. I couldn't get anything good from God unless he's merciful. I mean, wouldn't this be obvious with Peter? Here's the Lord Jesus in his worst hour. He says, hey, guys, would you, would you come pray with me? Yeah, sure. You know, they're gone. Peter, uh, Jesus doesn't even have a prayer partner. He's got Peter, James, and John, you know, best buddies, sleeping while he's suffering, sweating blood in Gethsemane over the cross that's coming. Okay, great, Peter. Good work. Then Peter says, hey, don't worry, I'm just getting a nap here because when those soldiers come in, they're going to get some business from me. And what does Peter do? Takes a soldier out, chops off an ear. Good work, Peter. Great shot. You know, Peter, I'm sure, was going for the neck. Not even close. Chops the ear off. Jesus restores the ear and says, Peter, put the sword back. And then Peter says, Lord, don't worry. Uh, no matter what everybody else says, I won't deny it. And, of course, they get to the big moment, you know. 
And here's a little maiden, a harmless maiden, servant girl who comes up and says, don't you know Jesus? Damn you. I never heard his name. You know, he curses and, and says he never heard of doesn't know anything about him. It's a total failure, wipeout. And then at the cross, of course, boom, you know, they're, they're nowhere to be found. Total failure. So if Peter's going to praise God, he's not going to praise God for his justice. <laughs> I mean, because if Peter, I mean, he, I'm sure he does praise God for his justice. But Peter is not overwhelmed with God's justice. That's a given. And if Peter got justice, Peter would not be writing this letter. He would be toast. So Peter is praising God for his mercy. Because my sins are forgiven. And not only are my sins forgiven, but look at this. God is going to pour out on me blessings untold. And Peter is basically basically now depending upon the Holy Spirit to help him author this, to describe the greatness of what God has done. Let me tell you, God has not just wiped away what you deserve, the destruction and the wrath and the justice. He's not only taken that away. Uh, Jesus Christ has poured onto you blessings that you do not deserve. So you've gotten the absence of what you do deserve and you've got the presence of what you don't deserve. That's called mercy and grace. So he says, in his mercy he has given us. So we start when we think about what God has done for us with mercy. And then notice, secondly, his gifts are miraculous. These gifts do not come just out of the providence of nature. That would be good enough. If God just, after what we did, just what if we could just take a few moments and put on the overhead here, put on the PowerPoint, all the sins, the, the big sins of the men in this room. How long do you think that list would be? I mean, that thing will be scrolling over and over. We'd be sitting here, you know, watching this thing go, all those sins listed up there. What would that be like? And so it would be amazing enough if in light of that, the list of everything in this room, just a little bit of which I know because you told me. So, of course, I know it's like this, you know. So what if that list were up there? And then God said, hey, don't worry. I'm going to send the sun for you to rise. By the time you walk, you came in, sun hadn't risen. When you go out, sun will have risen. Don't worry tonight. I'm going to make it go down again. Don't worry. You're going to get rain. You're going to get the seasons. You're going to have harvest. You're going to have food and clothing. You're going to have a job. Da, 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 da. He goes, man, alive. That's fabulous. I mean, I can't believe that God is so good to me. And all of creation ought to be saying that right now cannot believe that God is so good to us. It's called common grace. God in His common grace gives us these natural blessings because supernaturally He is behind nature, providentially ordering all things so that we have these blessings to enjoy. Amazing God. But Peter says, hang on just a minute, I'm not even talking about that. Let me just soar into the heavenlies with you for just a moment. I want you to see that His blessings go beyond the sustenance that we receive through nature. I want you to see the supernature, the gifts of supernature, the gifts that God brings us by arresting natural cause and effect in this world. And he says, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth. Or as Jesus puts it in John chapter three, birth from above. That we're given life from heaven itself. There's an invasion into your heart. When you follow Jesus Christ, the only reason you do is because God has taken up residence in your heart and has supernaturally given you new birth. Otherwise, you'd care nothing for Him. And the interesting thing about new birth is that you didn't dream it up. 
You didn't conceive yourself. You didn't have a conversation with your mom and dad and say, hey, why don't we get this thing started? I'd like to exist. It was something that happened to you. Not only that, how many of you remember the experience of coming through the birth canal? Kind of tight, wasn't it? But it was warm. Nobody remembers that. You're completely passive in this. God looked at you as a wicked sinner who deserved nothing but His wrath and justice. And He made you His child. He made you. He redeemed you. He calls you His own. He took initiative with you. He gave you birth, which is to give you life. Praise be to Job indeed, right? So Peter is saying, look, I'm not talking about the natural gifts. He, he, Peter and Paul both could give a sermon on this. In fact, Paul did. Acts chapter 17. Talking about God's natural, the gifts in nature itself. But Peter's talking about something way beyond that. And if we're going to stand firm on, on, on solid ground, this is our ground. It is God's character and His grace toward us. And this is what He's done. He's given us new birth majestically and miraculously. Now look, thirdly, His gifts are magnificent. You notice, first of all, we have a living hope. He has given us new birth into a living hope. What is this living hope? Our hope is amazing. What is it? Well, you see it, of course, in Romans 8, where we are told that the whole creation is groaning as in childbirth, waiting for its day of redemption. And Paul says we're saved in hope. What does that mean? We're saved in anticipation of great things to come in the future. It's called hope. We're saved in that. Paul says if you already had everything you were saved for, you wouldn't need hope. Because you'd already have it. The whole idea of hope is you don't have it yet. You say, oh, shoot. Now I know what that's like. Wait, waiting rooms. Hate waiting rooms. But there's hope. And we're saved in hope. And therefore, we, we're told we must be patient in hope. And in, in John's first epistle, just right after 1 Peter here, here's what John says. 1 John 3. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children. Here you have it again. Children of God. New birth. He's our father. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. If they don't know him, they won't know you. If they don't know his nature, they won't understand your nature. Dear friends, says John in 1 John 3, 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, catch this. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him. What is he like? Look at Revelation chapter 1, brethren. What is he like? He's more glorious than the sun. His face is more radiance, has more radiance than the sunshine. And John, when he saw him, fell down as though dead. Because the glory of Jesus Christ. What is He like? He is a glorious being. You shall be like Him. That's your hope. It's called the blessed hope. And when Peter is trying to figure out how to face Nero, when Peter is trying to figure out how to face deprivation and being marginalized as a Christian in a Roman Empire, when Peter is trying to figure out how to encourage saints who are facing their own demise in the face of civil authorities that are, that are persecuting the Christians. 
When Peter is trying to figure out how he's going to sustain life in the midst of all life's trials and afflictions, he lifts up his heart to the Lord and says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope. Gentlemen, do you know how to live by hope? If you don't, you don't know how to live. And what you're trying to do is to suck eschatological value out of a world that's passing away before your very face. And you're trying to suck eternal value out of not only a time-bound existence, but one that is under the curse. We are men who know our God. And we know He's merciful to His sons and that He has plans for us. And He's stored up a wonderful inheritance. Our hope is amazing. Look at this. Our hope is alive. That is, it's functional. It's a living hope. In Romans 8, 22-25, you see how it's living. And if we go back to 1 John, you see how it's living. Here's what John says. After just saying what we read, he says, Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. This hope is functional. It's practical. You know, some people say, so-and-so so heavenly-minded, he's no earthly good. I want you to know, I never met a man like that. I meet men who are so earthly-minded, they're no earthly good. And when I meet a man who is truly heavenly-minded, I find that he is very much worthwhile on earth. Because he's not sucking life out of this life, he's giving eternal life to this life. Because he's got his eyes set on on his hope. So it's a living hope. Our hope is affirmed. How do you know that you've got this hope? Well, because it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which is to say, if we've been buried with him in baptism, if we've been identified with him in his death, then Paul says in Romans 6, we shall surely be identified with him in his life. And if you're bearing the cross now and suffering... Because you identify with Jesus Christ, and if you identify with Him, you will suffer. Because you'll, He says, anyone who comes after Me must deny himself and take up His cross and follow Me. But if you're taking up your cross and you find yourself dying now, that kind of death, well, just as you've identified with His cross, you will identify with His crown. And just as you go down with Him, you'll go up with Him. His experience is your future. So our Hope is as guaranteed as the glorious stature of our Lord Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. So we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And notice, secondly, this is not just a living hope, but a secure inheritance. He says, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. What's he talking about? Well, we'd have to go back to the Old Testament. We don't have time. We only got seven or eight minutes here. But if you look in, in the book of Joshua alone, you'll find tens of references to the word inheritance. Joshua was given his inheritance. Every tribe was given their inheritance. It was the allocation of the land. It was called inheritance. Everybody had their inheritance. And, you know, on the year of Jubilee, the 50th year, 49 years, then you had a year of Jubilee, all the families who had sold off their property got their property back. So you never permanently sold your property, which was, of course, an expression of justice. You never had any tribe or ethnic group that lost the means of production. Nobody permanently had a family with multiple generations that were hopeless because there was going to be a year of jubilee of celebration when all the families got their hands back on their farm. Why? It was their inheritance. 
from Joshua. Here's what Peter is saying. We have an inheritance. You remember, he's already called us the dispersion, the diaspora, scattered. We don't have an inheritance here. We're pilgrims. We're strangers, aliens. That doesn't mean we don't have land. We've got land. And it's coming down out of heaven in Revelation 21, 22. And you better believe you've got a big plot. You've got a, not a farm. You've got a ranch. You've got an estate. And Peter says, praise be to the God who has kept for us an inheritance. And we needn't worry about whether we have an inheritance. It's kept imperishable, unspoilable, unfatable, unlosable. All these words are applied to the land in the Old Testament. I'm just going to leave it at that. And Peter is calling up words out of the Old Testament. In fact, when God speaks judgment to, to Israel, he says, because of your wickedness, the, the land will perish. Just as an example, in Isaiah, Peter saying, no, your land is imperishable. The, the, the grass withers and the flowers fade or fall. Peter says, no, there's going to be no drought in your land. No fading, no perishing, no spoiling. No losing. You can't be separated from this inheritance. So we say, great. Praise the Lord. I'm a rich man. You know, you have Tevye. If I were a rich man. Da, 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 da. You know, moaning, 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 groaning. If I were a rich man, you're a rich man. And you're living like a poor man most of the time. This is where hope comes in. This is what gets you up in the morning. You know where you're headed. You know you have an estate. You know that you're royalty. The world doesn't know it because they don't know him, says Peter. But you know you, and you know him, and he knows you. And so you walk through this life with hope, knowing that you have an estate. Now, it's one thing to have an estate. It's, one, it's another thing to get it. <laughs> you say, well, yeah, I'm a rich man. You know, I'm in my dad's will, but he's now 98 years old and going strong, you know, and I'm about to die. So what good does it do me? Uh, well, look at what Peter says. He says, who through faith are shielded. You're shielded. Not only is your inheritance shielded, but you're shielded. You're going to get it. You're going to receive it. And how are you shielded? By faith. Faith is our shield. And you look this, at this when we put on the whole armor of God in Ephesians 6, and we take up the shield of faith. It protects us. This Belief that you've been given in Jesus Christ is not just an intellectual assent to powerful spiritual reality. It wards off the darts of the evil one. It absolutely triumphs over the world, says John in 1 John 5. It's victorious. It's very powerful. Why? Because behind that faith is the very power of God. God's power is our confidence. Jesus says, no one can snatch these sheep out of my hand. The Father is greater than I. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. You come into Christ, you're in Christ. He's got a hold of you. That faith that He gave you, that's not a temporary gift. That's an eternal gift. And He will protect you by that faith. And then He says, not only is God's power our confidence, but God's time is coming. The last time is our finish line. And as the Apostle Paul says, we fix our eyes not in temporal things. We fix our eyes on eternal things. Fix your eyes on it. Now, here's what it does for you. It answers the basic problems that men are struggling with. First of all, self-absorption. 
Gentlemen, the more you're absorbed with yourself, the more depressing it is. I, I, I don't mean that as a criticism. I'm just saying it's just the way it is. You start thinking about yourself, what you can do, what you can't do, what's happened to you, what hasn't happened to you, what life is like, what it's not like. You get so absorbed in yourself. It's depressing. We are to contemplate our true inheritance and praise the Lord for it and live in the light of it. That will get you outside of yourself as you walk out this door today. Go out of this door as people contemplating their God. Secondly, when you find yourself paralyzed, this is going to get you out of it. You know why you're paralyzed? It's hopelessness. If you talk to anybody here who works with the poor, they'll tell you, well, you know, you've got school systems that are troubled, you've got crime, and, you know, you've got poor housing, and you've got generations of people who haven't encouraged their children to read and all this. I'll tell you what the deepest problem is. They'll tell you this. It's hopelessness. Hopelessness. Where does gambling come in big time? If you just look in our country where it's really taken over, it goes into neighborhoods where there's hopelessness. Because I don't have any hope the future's going to work out, so I'm looking for the quick fix in gambling. So that's where the casinos go. They go to Tunica, right around Memphis, where we have a lot of hopelessness. Atlantic City, Detroit, they go places where there's hopelessness. It's horrible economic policy because it's based on hopelessness. You can bank on it. It's going to be a hopeless proposition. And you find all kinds of misbehavior where there's hopelessness. And you find it in your life when you're hopeless. There's a farmer who's asked one day, hey, how's your cotton? He said, I didn't plant any. Why not? Well, I'm afraid of the bowl of evil. Well, how's your corn? I didn't plant any. Why not? Afraid of the drought. Well, you know, how's your soybean? I didn't plant any. You know, afraid of, afraid of the, the grasshoppers or whatever. Whatever. And then he was asked, what'd you plant? Well, nothing. I'm just playing it safe. And a lot of guys are just playing it safe because you had no hope. You don't think this is going anywhere. Peter is saying, I'm telling you, brethren, this is going somewhere. When we get to the last time, you're going to see the salvation that's been prepared and it's ready. There's nothing more to be done to it. There's a place prepared for you. He's not making up the bed now or mowing the lawn or anything. It's done. It's waiting. It's ready to be revealed. And all we need in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the trumpet and the archangel, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to appear in all of His glory and your inheritance is going to come to you in all of its fullness and glory. And you're going to say, my Lord and my God. And let us not say, I wish I'd only known. Because Wilson told you. (laughs) On Thursday morning at 7.30, let's pray. Father, we thank You for giving us an inheritance miraculously and undeservedly and when we think about it, we just get overwhelmed. We, can't, we can hardly believe this. But you solve that problem by giving us faith, a gift from above that we might believe and act in light of these things. Please, Lord, help us to get outside of ourselves and begin boasting about you and not ourselves, praising you, worshiping you. Help us, Lord, to labor in this life with hope because we know that this life leads to a glorious end that has been carefully prepared for us by Almighty God. And we ask you, God, for your blessing now upon every man, every heart. For we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is raised from the dead. Amen.